Welcome to Amici, News and Insights from the New York Courts. I'm John Carr. Today's Diversity Dialogue segment features a guest unlike any we've ever had on the program before. New York City Judge Rachel Wilkie Fryer is believed to be the first Hasidic woman to hold public office in United States history. Dubbed the Hasidic Superwoman of Night Court by the New York Times and named one of the 50 most influential Jews in the world by the Jerusalem Post, Judge Fryer shatters stereotypes about Hasidic women neither being seen nor heard outside their insular community. Judge Fryer came to practice a law relatively late in life. As is not unusual in her community, she married at 19 and had six children at a young age. It wasn't until she was 30 that she enrolled in Turo College. With a large family to care for, it took Judge Fryer six years to earn a bachelor's degree in political science. She learned politics by interning with then U.S. Senator Hillary Clinton and other elected officials. Judge Fryer then went to Brooklyn Law School and obtained her law degree in 2005. After passing the bar, Judge Fryer practiced commercial and residential real estate in Brooklyn and became an advisor and advocate for the citizens of Curious Joel, an Hasidic village in Orange County. In 2016, she ran for New York City Civil Court. She has since been assigned to New York City Criminal Court. Judge Fryer is also a licensed emergency medical technician and trained as a paramedic. Judge, thank you for coming on the program. Let's let's start with your roots, if we could. Where did you grow up? What did your parents do? Where did your grandparents come from? So I grew up in the Borough Park section of Brooklyn. My my parents are the children of Holocaust survivors. Actually, my father was born just in the middle of the Holocaust, but he doesn't even remember his father who perished in the Holocaust. Um, I do remember my father's mother. Um, so she was a survivor. She survived in, in Antwerp in Belgium. And um, my mother's parents survived the, uh, the Holocaust in, in Hungary. My grandmother survived the concentration camp. And my mother was born in Hungary, in a small village in Hungary. And she actually remained in Hungary until the Communist Revolution. And that's when my, my maternal grandparents moved from Hungary to the United States. And um, so there really was, I mean, I grew up surrounded by Holocaust survivors. So the Holocaust experience really was so much part of my growing up. My, my parents, my grandparents were very proud to be American. I was, I was raised with the very patriotic um, childhood, being told all the time to be so appreciative and be happy that we live in the United States, that we couldn't be proud of who we are and practice our religion openly without having to be afraid of being persecuted. So I grew up with, you know, a very well-rounded Jewish education as well as a very, very strong appreciation for the United States and, and proud of, of this country and, and what it offers to us as, as religious Jews. Your family, between the Nazis and the communists, have, have endured a great deal of oppression. Correct. Who were your early role models growing up? So my early role models, in, in what sense? Because there, there's so much that I've learned, you know, in my years growing up. It was, of course, my mother, who's been always the, my, my strength and my right hand. 
in, in, you know, in growing up and in raising us and teaching us. My father also, but in terms of my pursuit and my, in my legal profession, it was, it was my uncle who, of blessed memory, was a state Supreme Court judge. When he married my mother's sister, I was a, a, a young girl. My As I was growing up, I watched my uncle run first civil court judge after he clerked for, for a judge. And then I watched him become a state Supreme Court judge. And while I was doing my undergrad, he, he was like my mentor all the years. So while I was doing my undergrad, I would spend time in his courtroom on the bench next to him. And I would just watch him and learn from him. So he, he was my role model in terms of the law and what what can achieve in the legal profession. Mm-hmm. And then there were there were teachers of mine who taught me taught me you know Judaism and all that that encompasses in about being faithful and committed to our religion and and how much we can accomplish when when we have our faith when we have our faith we know that. There's a God that runs the world, and and He's an all-powerful God. So we we don't we don't really have limitations. There's so much that we can accomplish. So I I, I really grew up in a very very healthy environment. I had you know my parents who were role models for me. I had teachers who were role models for me. I learned that history repeats itself. And there's so much that we could learn from history. But I also learned of the incredible potential that each human being has. Everybody's created in the image of God with incredible potential. And that we should always strive and achieve and, and never let failure stop us. So it's, it's really been, it's a real full-loaded question. Because most people asking that question either ask it to me just like a one-dimensional question. Like, who was your role model in pursuing, you know, a legal career? But when you put everything together, it's like it becomes like a, like a, like a diamond with so many facets. Like, wow, there's been so many people that have really impressed me that I, I don't even know if I could say this one person. In, in Jewish history, though, and in more modern history, there, there was a, a woman in history who has really been my role model. And um, she was the founder of the movement for schools for Jewish girls because they were never schools for Jewish girls until around the 1930s, 1920s, 1930s, and she lived in Poland, in Krakow, Poland. And she's, now she's considered a revolutionary. And when she started her movement, I didn't know that when I was in school, I wasn't taught that she had opposition. We were just taught that Sarah Shanera, she's like the mother of the movement of for Jewish girls. Mm-hmm. So there's like so much about history that impresses me. I don't even know if I could just answer the question in just like with one person. It's just been so many people and from all different, from all different walks of life. So you, so you were influenced by a, a number of people, uh, family, outside the family, uh, historical figures, just a, just a whole lot of people who, who filled in various portions of your of your life and your being, is that is that correct? That is correct. What are the core Hasidic or quote ultra conservative values, or what what, what distinguishes uh, your group from other other Jewish groups? So I think what distinguishes us. So basically, Judaism is a religion based on the Torah, which we believe was written by God and given to the Jews by Moses on Mount Sinai. 
And we believe, all Jews believe, that the Torah was given then, and it's the same. It's one and the same. It never changes. We don't, we don't believe in reforming the, the commandments. The way they were given is the way they're observed. The concept of Hasidism, which began in the 18th century, which really was a response to anti-Semitism, so it was a combination of cohesiveness, we stick together as a group, it was a concept of serving God with joy, as opposed to um, being strict and formal. It's more joy, bringing joy into the practice of Judaism, a lot of singing, dancing, and celebrations. And it's also very much anti-conformist. We, we don't conform too much to modernity when it impacts our religion. So the same way that we observe the rules of what's kosher, that remains the same. The same way we observe the Sabbath remains the same. When cars were invented, we didn't look for loopholes to be able to use the car. We don't use the car on Sabbath. The same thing in terms of our dress. We're, we're very traditional. On the other hand, we're different than other religions, say like the, the Amish, who you, people sometimes compare us to the Amish, but there's a lot of distinctions between the Hasidim and the Amish. So on the one hand, the Amish, they don't use electricity, but we do use electricity. However, on the Sabbath, we're not going to turn on the light. So there's, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to get stuck in the minutia of it. Mm-hmm. The overall embracing concept is, is that there is a very strong feeling of cohesiveness. We're all together. There is also the concept of we're not looking to to reform what we do without looking to change it. And it's okay for us that we look different. So mm-hmm. like when I was in law school, I knew that I looked different, but I was okay. It, I didn't I didn't feel compelled that I have to blend in with everybody else. It's okay for me to have my different perspective. It's okay for me to have my different style of dress. But at the same time, it doesn't stop me from being friends with other people from different walks of life and sharing my culture and sharing my religion. Mm-hmm. So the concept I think is is that in, in many senses, we're almost like frozen in time. But on the other hand, when it comes to like treating the elderly or the sick, we want the most up-to-date medicine to treat the people who are sick. But when it comes to observance of, of the commandments, we're going to do it the traditional way. So we're not looking to change things. So it, it, and you, and you, when you live it, you don't. It, it's just so much a part of what you're doing. You don't even think twice about it. But you, when you start to explain to an outsider, it becomes a little complicated. That's why you have to like really see it, see it in practice to really understand it. I, I think I understand. Now, what, what's the traditional role of a woman in that in that culture? In your side, in a, woman's your side. Role, a woman's role is very, very important because <clears throat> in Judaism, Judaism is, is a religion based on your identity, which is based on your maternal your maternal background, right? Who is your mother? That's, that's where it starts and that's where it ends. If your mother is Jewish, then you are identified as a Jew. And that has never changed. So essentially, we're, we are given, the women are given the responsibility of carrying on the religion. So that, that's, I think, the, the, the highest pedestal that women are put on. Right? Like if somebody, I always tell somebody, it makes no difference 
who you know your father is. Your father can be the, 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 the greatest Jew in the world, but if your mother isn't, according to Judaism, you're not considered Jewish. Of course, there are, there's ways to convert, and we're not going to get into that. The point is that the woman's role is a very important role. So obviously, since she's carrying on the religion, her role is to have a family and to be the, the anchor of the family. And that's why getting married and having children is so important to us. At the same time, if your role is having children and being the, the anchor of the family, there are going to be a lot of rules that you're going to be exempt from. Now, people from the outside look at these exemptions to rules. Oh, women aren't treated fairly because you can't be part of a quorum, dominion, to pray. And I, I'll explain that the reason why we don't have to be part of the quorum of ten is because when a woman prays, she can pray alone. Because her prayer alone is okay. It's acceptable. She doesn't need to have nine other people in the room to keep her from getting distracted. So that's how the, the role of the woman sometimes could be misconstrued, but the role of women are very important. And I mean, I'm proud of my role in the kitchen and my role at home, but that doesn't mean that we're discounted in any other sphere of life. Oh, it's not necessarily encouraged. In other words, because it can because it can be very challenging to do uh, to do more than you have to. Out, you know, in other words, if you were raising a large family. You have a lot of responsibility. So, unlike other communities, which women sometimes feel pressured to go on to higher education, you don't really have that in the Hasidic community. That's not to say that there are many women who are going to college these days and who are, you know, pursuing careers and, and are achieving lots of success. If she decides to stay home and be a homemaker, she doesn't feel like she's... Um, missing something or not doing something that she should be doing. Mm-hmm. I, think, I think I understand. Now, there's certainly a perception that in your community, women are subservient to men. Is that fair or accurate? It's, it's, it's not fair and it's not accurate. However, that's not to say that there aren't men who have personality disorders and who do use religion to maybe oppress women. And I've been fighting that myself with the organization that I formed and I direct, which is the first all women's volunteer EMS organization. Because there I, I was a clear example to me of where men were using religion to create a boys club. They just didn't want to allow women to serve in a capacity as EMTs to help other women. And that's when I took a stand and I fought it. I said, this is not our religion. Don't take our religion and, and use it to disenfranchise women. So it's not the religion that does it. It could be people who do it, but not the religion. Like, so sometimes there are people who try to take Judaism and you know, and just like manipulate things for their own advantage, but that's not the majority, and that's not how we live our life. But most people in my community don't really spend too much time trying to explain the outside world what really happens in the privacy of our homes. Either we're too busy, or either people think, well, nobody really cares, or people will say, well, what difference will it make anyhow? So for various reasons, most of, of the outsiders don't really have a 
full understanding of our of our cuisine and culture, and, and that that really always bothered me so much, which is really why I welcome everybody to me to speak and share. So a long-winded answer, but I hope I I, I answered some of your part of your, at least part of your question. Yeah, that was very helpful. I believe you told Megan Kelly in an interview that if you are, as it seems to be the case, the first Hasidic woman elected to public office, that your husband deserves credit for allowing his wife to pursue public office. Is 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 that what you meant? Um, did did you need his permission to do this? Not necessarily. I think in any relationship, when people live together, you really want to have sort of a a consent. Between, between people who are together and what you do. So it's not someone that I need to have his permission, but I would I didn't want to do it if he wasn't going to be supportive. I think the fact that he was so supportive, that not only was he, did he consent to it and say, it's okay, but he fully supported, completely, completely, with 110% of himself he supported. And it was like, it, it was heartwarming to see and it really, for me, it was like really special that he really, really understood that it's something that I wanted so badly that he was just so, he, he was there for me every step of the way. I understand. Well, what was the immediate reaction of your husband, your parents, your in-laws, your religious leaders, your community, when they learned of your interest in becoming a lawyer? So I had been a legal secretary and a paralegal for many years. I graduated high school when I was 17. And at that time, there were no college opportunities for the Hasidic ultra-Orthodox community. So for me, it was just going to high school, getting my high school diploma was the furthest I was going to go. And I had no aspirations of going to college because it wouldn't have been acceptable. So as a legal secretary, I became quite well-known in the community because I was working for local lawyers. And people just assumed I was this somehow legal expert. So then when I finally did go to law school, it was kind of, oh, finally you're going to become a lawyer. People thought I was a lawyer before I even actually became a lawyer. And I did it in a very, very slow fashion over many, many years. So I graduated high school, became a legal secretary at the age of 17, worked for law firms, first local, then in the city for like large law firms. By the time I started my undergrad and I enrolled in college, I was 30. I already had my first three children were born. And I did it very slowly. It took me six years, and I was still working full-time while I was going to college part-time. And I had my second little, my fourth child, and then my twins were born during my years in college. So everything happened very slowly, all open to the community. And I think by the, by the community seeing who I am and seeing the family that I was raising, people were very accepting of it. It was nothing that I did was considered unacceptable. So it was, everything I did really was embraced. And in fact, even when I ran for public office, remember, I ran. I had to have the votes of my community. I didn't just get appointed. Of course. Of course. Now, you, you mentioned that earlier on it would not have been acceptable for, uh, for you to go to college. Not acceptable by who? The community itself. When we went, when we went to school... It was, we had girls girl went to all girls' school, and the boys went to the boys' school, for the yeshiva. That's how it always has been. And college was considered a very, a very secular environment. When Turo College opened up, and other colleges that were geared to the observant Jewish community, with separate classes for men and women, 
no classes over the Shabbos or the Jewish holidays. Your teachers were Jewish. Most of them, at least, were. It was. It was became acceptable. It was. It was because Hasidim don't change, but when opportunities change, then we're there. So when things were now made and catered to our needs, then we, it was okay to go, and we were able to go. Okay. So when you were at Toro, you, you were you not in an integrated environment, or were you? No, it was an all girls. It still is an all girls. It, it, they have a women's division and a men's division. Okay. Okay. In college, um, well, maybe maybe not because of the two divisions you had, but uh, so so you did not encounter co-ed classrooms. Uh, no. Okay. How were you treated by uh, other students and professors? In Toro. Yes. Oh, very well. I I was always an older student mm-hmm. because I was I was like thirty when I started. Sure. I was an older student, but I loved it. It was to me, it was like a dream come true. Like finally, finally, I I'm, I'm able to like see myself on a path of higher education. I had no idea how long it would take me. I had no idea how I'd be successful, but I knew that I had to try, and that's why I did. So, so the situation at Toro was what made it practical for you. So if I understand correctly, it would not have been acceptable for you to go to a traditional co-ed college where you were with boys and girls of all different communities. That's correct. Okay. okay. That is correct. Okay. Now, you majored in political science. Why? So initially, when I decided to go to college, I figured, let me major in business because even though law school was my dream, I don't know if I'll get there. So I started to take these classes in economics. And I sat, I listened to the professor, and he was talking about guns and butter and all these, these different economic theories. And I said, this is not for me. And I just quickly changed political science and pre-law. And I was like Alice in Wonderland. I just loved it. So it wasn't politics specifically you were thinking of going into. You, you had in your mind at that point kind of a... Uh, a bedrock of information that you may use to go to law school? Yeah, I knew that it was pre-law. I, I wanted pre-law because I have a passion for law. It was just part of my genetic DNA. Mm-hmm. I love advocacy. I love justice and law. And and I, I think it was also just fascinating to see the, the interplay and, you know, how Judaism, being one of the oldest religions, had impact so much in general, on laws for society. And so I, I found that, you know, very interesting. Oh, is, is, isn't Judaism basically the roots of contract law? I believe it is. <laughs> I believe it is. Mm-hmm. Now, yeah. in, in, how in the world did you get through law school? At some point during law school, you had six kids, two of them infants. How do you juggle studying for the bar and fulfilling all your duties as a mother and a home and a homemaker? You've got you've got several full time jobs at once. How did you do? How did you do that? I tried to take it very slowly. Try to do it whatever I could do part time. I did part time. I I also prayed a lot. You know, asked God please help me because I couldn't do it without really divine you know providence and divine assistance. And I, I, my mother always says, time is like money. It's not how much you have, it's how you spend it. So I didn't talk on the phone too much. I didn't go to parties. I didn't go to dinners. I didn't, I really had to limit the places that I would be going and the things that I would be doing. It, and, I, and I knew also that 
a long-term goal. I knew that I wasn't going to rush anywhere. Mm -hmm. I think that's how I did it, just doing it slowly, every day, step by step. And and also, I just loved it. I was just so grateful that that I was here, that I was doing it. So I, I was just like, just so happy to be doing it, that even if it was hard, it's what I wanted to do. What is it that, that attracted you to the law? I think it was, it's just like genetic. Since I was a little kid, I'm the oldest of my siblings, and whenever somebody needed to um, have someone argue for them or defend them, my parents always send me. And I was the one that would always take a stand and stick up for people who I thought were being treated unfairly. So it was just, you know, I was always a little kid that was a lawyer. When my mother would need someone to pull up a customer who was checked balanced, she would ask me to do it. So I think it was just that, I think that's just part of who I am. Mm-hmm. Always looking out to, you know, what wrong, what, what injustice I could correct. That, you know, that makes me feel like I did something good. I helped somebody else. No, I know. I know you did a, work, a lot of work, at least at one point, um, for Curious Joel, which has a reputation of being a very closed knit community. But you, you, as an attorney, arranged interviews with women in the community, something that I don't think had been done very often, if ever, um, to challenge the stereotypes. And you've been, you've appeared often in the New York City and national media. <clears throat> you are, it seems, unusually outspoken. Why? Why have you taken on that role? Because I saw that the Hasidic community has, at least at that point, had a very negative PR in the media. And I felt that it was almost our own doing. I felt that if we weren't, if we were going to shun the media and we were going to say they don't understand us and we're not going to speak to them, then how can we ever expect them to give an accurate portrayal of who we are? So I actually went out speaking to a couple of rabbis, and they said, I, I think it's so important. I think it's critical. And when I started to speak publicly, it was like the Internet was just starting. And it was just like at the, like the turn of, you know, social media. And I said, you know, this is the age of information. It's, it's very nice to say that we want to be insular, but we have to change the way we are insular. We still have to maintain our insularity, but we have to allow the outside, at least the ones who are who are genuinely interested, to hear it from the perspective of an insider. We can't allow outsiders who who proclaim to be professionals to, to really accurately portray our lifestyle and our and our emotions and our dedication. And then there also are people who have left the community for whatever their own reasons may be, who go out and the media, and they share their negative experience, which may be true for them, but that doesn't describe anybody else. Mm-hmm. So I felt it was important for people who are within the community, who are who are proud of who we are, to have a voice. But it, it just, I felt it didn't exist. I felt that there was no, there was no platform for this type of voice. So I said, I'm going to create it. And it was my first year in law school, or no, sorry, my last year in law school, when just by happenstance, while I was at a, at a, a zoning board meeting just to observe and learn, because I was taking a class in zoning in law school, where I was approached by somebody in the, from the village of Curious Joel who asked me to assist him creating the zoning ordinance for Curious Joel. And that's what actually propelled me to work for the village 
and then open up my law practice there. But I started to represent clients when I was still a law student under my law professor's guidance and supervision. And it was then when I saw how critical it was because Julia Joel was even more insular than the part of Brooklyn that I live in. And I would see what the local what the local newspaper was publishing and I said, My goodness, that they would only know the truth and would change what they're saying. So I just sent an email and the, the reporter and I became real good friends since then. His name is Chris McKenna. And I said to him, I said, you know, I, let me introduce myself. I'm Hasidic. I'm in my last year of law school. And I have many friends and close family in Curious Joel. And I think if you would get to know us better, it may change your perspective and the way you write. And he responded right away. He said, you know, I have my contacts in KJ, but they're all men. So if you want to meet with me, and, and that's, how the, that's how the relationship and the friendship started. I, I invited him to come with his wife and his child to our summer home to, for a Shabbos meal. And this goes back, I can't tell you how many years it goes back. Now, Chris is with this the Times Herald Record, isn't he? I'm sorry? Chris McKenna is with the Times Herald Record, isn't he? That's correct, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, um, I, I can relate to that experience. I was a newspaper reporter for many years. I wrote about the... Curious Joel litigation that went to the Supreme Court at the time it was going on. I went to Curious Joel. I would have been happy to talk to people. I couldn't find anyone that would talk to me. They just would ignore me or walk away or tell me I couldn't possibly understand. And I knew I was only getting half the story, but the other half wasn't available. Mm Mm-hmm. That's it. So that's that's what I thought was so important. So I think what you're saying is you can be... 100% 100% true to your values and still have a public voice. That's what I want. That's what I said I need to find out. I need to try. I need to at least try. And what I did was, I have, I mean, she's not alive anymore, but my grandmother's sister was one of the early, early families, one of the pioneers that moved into Curious Joel when the village just opened up. Mm-hmm. And I asked her if she would allow me to come with the reporter on a Friday so he can come and see the household very and prepared for Shabbos and could see her and the children, the grandchildren. And she went to ask the rabbi for permission. He, she wants to know, is it allowed? And he answered her, she said, not only, is, not only can you do it, but you should do it. I, I take this opportunity. And that, and that was just the beginning of, you know, of, of my learning so much. And, and Chris McKenna also learning so much. And I met with other reporters as well. And then I think, Ultimately, I do think that with social media and with time and with, you know, my having kind of done it as well, I think more people are opening up and are speaking, which I think is so important because people really need to see the inside. But then not everybody should be doing it. So it's not for everybody. Sure, sure. I'd like to talk about your uh, judicial position. I think you mentioned earlier uh, one of your one of your many role models was an uncle, and I think you were speak, re- referring to Judge David Schmidt. Um, That's correct. Um, so it wasn't unprecedented for the Democratic Party to nominate an ultra orthodox man. Was it a different Was it a different challenge for an ultra orthodox woman? So it was, and it wasn't, and I'll explain it. The fact that I was a woman and I wanted to become a judge was really not a problem. The first thing I did was I sat with the rabbi and said to him, Rabbi, before I really embark on this, I need to ask you, 
is there anything in Jewish law that I would be violating by running for this position? And he said no. So that, that was clear. There was nothing in terms of any of the mitzvahs or the commandments that I would be violating by doing it, right? So that was clear. But then we come to the cultural part of it. Has it ever been done before and can it be done before? And that wasn't a problem with it because over time, Hasidic women have opened businesses, become professionals, so, and people knew who I was, that wasn't a problem. The problem that I encountered was that I had upset some of the leaders in, in the community because I was challenging the rule that EMS is only for men, not for Hasidic women. And I had rabbinical support, and I was not going to take this lying down. So that's where I had challenges, but not because I wanted to become a judge. So it's really interesting because people would think that, oh, the Hasidic community is like the oppressed women and they're, you know, way behind the times. My story proved it's not true because my own community went out and voted for me. And they were so proud. You have no idea of how proud they are and still are. Like, people say, oh, how are you? How are you, Judge Fryer? And I'll say, I'm only Judge Fryer from 9 to 5. After that, I'm just Rookie Fryer. So, but for me, it's just so, it's, it's so, I'm so grateful to my community that they supported me. And people need to understand that. I wasn't appointed by the mayor or the governor or anybody else. I had to run. I was on the street, I was collecting signatures, people had to come out and vote for me, and that's how I won. Now, you, you, you couldn't have been elected solely with the, with the votes of the people in your community. You, you, you had to have garnered a considerable number of votes from people who are not members of your community. Is that correct? Correct. Now, how did you, were, were there any constraints on you as a, as a Hasidic woman running for office that would not have been imposed on well, your uncle, when he was running for office, are there things he could do that you couldn't do? Well, there, there are restrictions on women who are ultra-Orthodox and observant to the degree that I am, and that is the gender divide between men and women. So a lot of what we do in our community, our observance, are, I wouldn't necessarily call them rules, but they be, they've become rules, but they're based on being safeguards. So over, Jew, over the course of Jewish history, the rabbis have implemented safeguards, which we absolutely embraced as rules, to keep ourselves on the right track and to make sure that as society goes on and advances, we remain committed to the authenticity of our religion. And one of the, one of the rules that I follow, which applies to Hasidic men and Hasidic women, is the separation of the genders in a physical sense. So I won't shake hands with a man. It makes no difference if he's a religious man or not a religious man. I won't shake hands with a man. And on the same time, if I have to go to a doctor for medical treatment, then there's that, that restriction doesn't apply. But the fact that I will not shake hands with a man and I want to campaign for, the, for their vote, and that makes it a little bit challenging. But what I found over time is that no matter what community you come from, or what standards you have, or what values you have, if you're open and honest with people, Americans are amazing. They will respect you and look up to you for sticking to your values. So and at the end of the day, 
what may have seemed like a restriction or a limitation end up opening up more doors of opportunity despite the fact that some windows were shut. I understand. I understand that. that that's interesting. Now, I know you, you uh, ran for and elected to a, a civil court judgeship, but I also know you've been assigned to criminal court. What made you gravitate to, uh, to criminal law? So I was assigned for the first two years to criminal court, then I was I transferred back to civil. Okay. So this really, it, it wasn't any choice of mine. We don't make these decisions. The, the OCA tells us we were going to be working, and every December we get some surprises. So for the first two years, I was in a broken criminal court. I found out two weeks before the term started, and I, I was shocked. I said, you, you're making a mistake. I mean, I grew up in the Hasidic community. I never watched TV or movies. I don't, I don't have too much of a concept of criminal law other than what I learned in law school. And they said, don't worry, we'll, treat, we'll train you in Dutch school for three days. But in any event, I, I, I learned so much from those years. It was so incredible. It was a very powerful and meaningful experience. I actually found that my years doing um, my pro bono work was very helpful when I was in criminal court. My years helping adolescent kids at risk in the Hasidic community is what really made me connect with these young defendants. And, and I, I realized it was the same trauma. The, the Hasidic boys that were that were doing drugs, and it was the same thing. They, they weren't bad boys. They were making bad choices because they had gone through trauma. And I was really able to make that connection. So criminal court was very meaningful. I felt like I was really making a difference in people's lives, really understanding them. And I would speak to the defendants the same way I spoke to the boys that I would there with counsel. You roll up your sleeves, work hard. You, you can't change your past, but you can change your future. Always believe in what you can accomplish. You know, you can't control who your parents are, but you can control what you do with life. And it was to, I, I had these defendants cry in the courtroom and say, Your Honor, no one ever told me things like this before. So I think that my religious values in, and the value and the faith that we have in humanity is really what made my years at criminal court. It was supposed to be one year, and they asked me after the first year, Would you stay for a second? And I said, Absolutely. So that's what it was all about. And then I was transferred to, to King's um, civil court. I was six months in. in, in Brooklyn Civil Court, where I am now, in 2019 for the first half a year. Then I went to Queens for two and a half years, Queens Civil Court. It's also an amazing experience. It, I don't know whose idea it is to move judges around, because we always resent it when we're told to pack up and go. But in hindsight, I could say I've learned so much. With every courthouse that I've been to, I've learned from other judges, some other supervisors. And I think it, it, it really gave me so much dimension that I couldn't have had just staying in one place the entire time. Mm -hmm. Are there ever times as a judge when the law leads you in one direction and your faith leads you in another? That's a very interesting question because I've asked that same exact question many, many times. And the answer is no, and I'll explain to you why. So on the one hand, you know about... Um, Recusal. If, if there ever is a, a situation where I feel that I can't make a decision without, you know, without, without some other, you know, um, conflict, then I, I, I would have to recuse myself. That, that, that's the one thing. The other thing is there, there is a concept in the Talmud that teaches us that the law of the land is the law that applies. So the laws of the Talmud aren't applicable when I'm sitting in civil court in Kings County or Queens County. 
I'm not, I'm not basing my decision using the Judaic rule of law. So there's, there's no conflict, and, and Judaism is based on truth, justice, fairness, not taking advantage of the poor, not taking advantage of the widows, the widowers, the, the orphans. So much of Judaism is based on compassion and, and justice that I don't see any conflict at all. It sounds like the Constitution has the same values. It does. It does. And, and I always say to all my, my fellow observant Jews that I have the best seat in the house. You know why? Because regardless of which quorum I'm signed to, above me are the words in God we trust. Thank you, Judge. Uh, for the benefit of our listeners, uh, let me mention that Judge Fryer is a world-class multitasker, and we are continuing this conversation while she is driving with a hands-free device, I am sure. So if you hear any uh, road noise, well, welcome to the uh, frantic life of Judge Rachel Fryer. Judge, let me pick up where we uh, left off. And I believe you mentioned before that your community is joyous with lots of celebrations and singing. That, of course, flies in the face of the perception of, of the Hasidic woman living a dour, gray, joyless, sheltered life of subservience and sacrifice. So tell me the inside scoop. Are you guys the life of the party? <laughs> I think we are. I think that we are the life of the party. And I think that... Um, Perceptions that are made from outsiders, and uh, when you have an insular community, it makes it even harder for an outsider to get an accurate perception of what the life of a Hasidic woman is all about. Um, I think what compounds it is that there are often periodicals or articles or media coverage from people who have left the community who have a very um, different story to share. But if you speak with people who are from within the community, who are living in the community, you'll get a very different perception. So I think that we're, we, we are the life of the party. And that's not to say that things don't get hard at times, because just like any other family, any other mother of a family, their, their life has its ups and downs. But I think that when you have holidays and, and family occasions to celebrate, it just that much, it, it just gives you the opportunity to be happy and share joy and celebrate. So tomorrow is Passover, and I'll, I'll tell you that a lot of the work does fall on the women, but mm -hmm. the men work very hard as well. But holidays bring celebrations, bring joy. It brings work at the same time, but the work comes with its with its benefits and its rewards as well. I understand. Now, you indicated previously that you, you didn't really get any pushback when you decided you wanted to go to college or law school or to become a judge, but you did run into some resistance in establishing an all-female ambulance corps. So first, can you tell me a little bit about the ambulance corps and, 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 what, what, and, and what, what is the name of it again, and then the resistance that you encountered? Okay, so the name of the ambulance corps, it's, it's a Hebrew word. It's Ezras Nashim. And it has a double translation. Esras Nashim can have the translation of helping women, Nashim being women, and Esras meaning mean helping. But the word Esras has a double meaning, and the other meaning is like the quarters, the section. And every synagogue has the women's section, which is called the Esras Nashim. So it kind of is, it's an all-women's volunteer corps, and it's our place. It's our place, it's our space, women for women. Why did you start it? 
So I actually didn't start it. I was approached by a group of women about 12 years ago. They had gotten wind that I'm a bit of a community advocate, and they were looking for an attorney that would represent, that would help them and represent them pro bono. They had been trained as EMTs about three decades ago when the all-male organization, which is fantastic, and it's called Hatsala, was formed. It was initially supposed to be a women's division, but that, that plan never worked out. And they had tried to regroup and restart, and they realized that they couldn't do it on their own because there was a lot of resistance, and someone suggested to them that they should get a woman attorney who would help them pro bono. And that's how I got into the picture. And I met these women. I had no idea that this idea even existed. I had no idea that people, that women wanted to do this. And um, the more I heard of their story, the more inspired I became, and I became their director by default. And, um, and by the way, if anybody has time, the documentary um, called 93 Queen was created um, and was released in 2018. And that really shares the inside story of how I got involved and how we started the, the agency. Great. I, I have watched some of it and I do intend to watch uh, the rest of it. Now, what, what was the resistance based on? Why, why, why did anyone resist you? really boiled down to politics. It boiled down to politics. I think it boiled down to basically it was a boys club. It was men who were accustomed to doing things their own way. And I think that in, you know, in historic or any other department that was historically all male, when women came to the forefront and wanted to join, there was pushback. Mm -hmm. So I think in the Hasidic community, we were maybe like 40 years behind the rest of the world when it came to women stepping forward in this. But we weren't coming, we weren't coming forward from, you know, a women's rights perspective or anything in terms of feminism. It was just in terms of women's modesty, which is held in very high regard in the Hasidic community. But the men said that modesty is overridden because women aren't capable. And that's when I really took them to task and I said, we are capable. So I went to the various rabbis and I said that, that the women are complaining that their modesty is being compromised when they were having emergencies. And since this community has such a high value on modesty, allow us to form, or first I wanted the, the woman really wanted to join Hatzalah. Mm -hmm. And when the answer was no, we would, I was told, start your own. Now I was told start your own because they knew it was so complicated and so difficult and so challenging. But I didn't. I had no idea what I was getting myself into. And for 10 years, we operated as a basic life support first response unit, trying to advocate for our, our license to get our own ambulance. And that took about 10 years. And in December of 2020, we finally prevailed and won at the state level because first we applied at the, at the local level by the, re, by the regional EMS council known as Remsco, mm -hmm. and we, we lost over there, so we appealed to the state, and then we won our license on the state level. But you, you need to understand a little bit of how this works, because this, New York City doesn't give out any more license, licenses for ambulances. So and I, think that, I think that has been ready for 30 years. Unless you can file what's called a certificate of need, a CON, and prove that the existing resources are not sufficient and that you tried to ameliorate and you couldn't. So we had to prove that the existing EMS in Brooklyn is all male 
in the Jewish community and that there was a need for women to have women and that we tried to join the men's EMS agency and we were told no. So therefore, we deserve our own license. And we prevailed and we got our own license. Now we have our own ambulance. <laughs> That's remarkable. I, I, I want to uh, circle back and uh, pursue something you mentioned earlier. You mentioned the modesty rules and offline you explained to me why those exist and why historically Hasidic women will keep their head uh, covered. Can, can you just tell, explain that for our listeners? Explain what? The rules? No, why, why those rules exist. Why, why, why modesty is so important and why the, the head covering is, is such an important tradition. So all, all of Judaism falls under Jewish law. And Jewish law is what we get from the Torah, the five books of Moses, as it's been interpreted in the Talmud. And it's vast and it covers volumes and volumes. To a certain extent, there's a certain amount of elasticity and different communities and different rabbis have different interpretations on the rules. One of the rules that we have in Judaism is about the dress and it, it applies to men as well. Men have their rules according to the Torah, how they're supposed to appear and how they're supposed to dress, the garments that they have to wear, and so do women, we have our rules. Now, in the Hasidic community, what I think distinguishes us a little bit is that we go above and beyond the letter of the law. So anything that's a commandment or a mitzvah, we take it to the to a next level. And we, we sanctify and we glorify every mitzvah. So when it comes to modesty, I guess the rules are a bit stricter than what you would see in a more, and I'll use the word modern, but I don't know if it's really the right interpretation or the right classification, but in a more modern community that does not appear to be as Hasidic. And, and, and Hasidism really is a, it's a certain style. In, in observance, because you, you can't, you shouldn't think that because someone is not Hasidic, they may not be as devoutly religious as a Hasid. So, because religion, the relig, your religious observance is based on the commandments. So you could have somebody who's not Hasidic, but is very, very careful and sensitive to all the commandments. It's a style of of how we observe, and it's based on the teaching of the Baal Shem Tov, who lived in the 18th century, and his concept was we need to serve God with joy. So the whole concept of Hasidism is based on observance with a heightened level of joy, as opposed to observance out of fear or unhappiness or the threat of some punishment in hell. That's not our religion. Our religion is based on joy and appreciating every day and connecting to God every moment of your life. So everything that you do should be done with a, with a certain amount of, of connection to God. Nothing that we do is disconnected from God. So we, even if I'm doing something that's completely secular, I'm not, I'm not doing it in a vacuum. It's all under my observance and my and my religion. Okay. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. And thank you for explaining. You seem like a contradiction. A modern career woman rooted to an ancient tradition. 
what do you say to those who might think that those two dynamics are mutually exclusive? You can't do both. So it's interesting because many years ago, when I made the decision to go to, to go to college and go to law school, I had the same question because I I was raised with the concept that if you venture outside, you may not be as committed and as dedicated to your community as to a citizen. And I started to question that, and I said to myself, well, why does it have to be that way? Why why is it that go to college and then go to law school, which was my dream, why does it have to be that I won't remain as committed to a citizen? So that, this was my own personal journey my own personal, you know, effort to try to figure this out. Are these two concepts mutually exclusive? Does it mean that if I want to go into one world, I have to abandon the other? And as I was going through my journey, I realized that the answer is no. You don't have to. You can, you can remain as committed as you want to be, as you are, to your religious values. I still succeed in the, in the, whether it's the academic world, whether it's the medical world, whether it's the legal world, whichever profession you want to wander into, you don't have to compromise your religious values. That, that, I would say that applies to anybody from any religion. I think we live in, in, a, in a great country, in a great state, in a great city, and maybe, maybe this doesn't apply to my grandparents' generation when they lived in Eastern Europe right before the Holocaust. Mm-hmm. I, I think that in, in their in their generation, we couldn't have it both ways. But I think today we can. Mm-hmm. That's a wonderful answer. I've only got one final question for you, and that is, if there was one thing you would like the non-Hasidic community to understand about you and your culture, what would it be? Okay, so there's one thing I want them to understand is that we're often lumped together and we're so diverse. And often what you see from the outside is not what we are on the inside. So don't be judgmental. Don't don't be quick to make decisions about us. And and speak to people and learn about who we are because you may be very surprised. Very, very surprised to find out what the Hasidic life and culture is really like. So I think that would be my 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 wish if after hearing this people will say, Oh, it's not what I thought it is. And it seems like it's it's a beautiful, it's warm, it's a, it's it's a unique lifestyle, and it's usually hard to find the truth from outsiders. But I'm willing to answer questions. If anybody wants to reach out to me, uh, I I welcome questions because I think that there's it, it's just so fascinating how rich our culture is and how little about it usually available for the outside world. Judge, thank you so much for illuminating me and for your time and for uh, doing this podcast. And uh, I hope you have a very joyous Passover week. Thank you.